Thank you for coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm so excited to be here for our fifth season of the Thank You For Coming Out podcast. In 2015, I founded the Queer Improv Show, Thank You For Coming Out, or TIFCO as we call it. And it is now one of the longest running queer improv shows in New York City. During the show, our storytellers share their coming out stories, and then our improvisers bring those stories to life with improv. But a podcast is a little different. We still have our storytellers share their stories, but instead of folks improvising, we talk about them. And I'm so excited about my guest here with me today. Abdi Nazimian, he, him, his, is the author of five novels, including his latest, Only This Beautiful Moment. For his literary work, he has received a Lambda Literary Award and a Stonewall Honor, and his novel, Like a Love Story, was selected by Time as one of the 100 best young adult books of all time. His screenwriting credits credits include the films The Artist's Wife, The Quiet, and Menendez, I hope I said that right, Blood Brothers, and numerous television series. His producing credits include Call Me By Your Name, Little Woods, and Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. He lives in Los Angeles with his husband, two children, and their dog, Disco. Abdi, welcome. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. I, I'm thrilled. And also, I didn't realize your your whole improv thing. I'm a huge improv person. I started doing improv in high school, did it all through college, was the president of our improv company in college, and then came to LA and went through all the UCB improv classes. Big, big improv person. Oh, my God. That's so amazing. I'm so happy yeah. to have a fellow improviser. It's, I, I, know actually... I, always, um, I always tell writers who ask me for writing advice that one of the things they should do is improv, because improv takes away your fear of of writing and writer's block because writing is just improvising it's just your characters improvising on the page so I love that and when I I talk to people who are maybe if I'm pitching an improv workshop or something and they're like well I've never done improv before it makes me nervous I'm like every conversation you've ever had in your life is improv it's so you're making true. it up well, as you're going so like <laughs> well and it and also improv is just so good for, well, huge. If you want to be a TV writer in a writer's room, all the writer's rooms I've been in remind me so much of my college improv company because it's the same thing. And it's also just like lessons on how to live because this whole, I know it's like now it's a cliche of like the yes anding, but if you know how to yes and, you'll have much better relationships in your whole life, not just in improv or in writing, but just in life because you understand how a conversation should feel. Yeah, and it's like, just that inherent not shutting the other person down and just being exactly. like, let's see how we can work together, whatever exactly. the thing is that you're throwing at me. Yeah. Oh, I love improv. I haven't done it in so long and now I miss it. Well, let's improvise this combo. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So we all have multiple coming out stories and we have multiple coming into ourselves stories. And so I'd love to hear one that you would like to share with us. Well, I mean, I, I want to preface this by saying I think the thing that is very interesting about my coming out, and I know a lot of other, you know, people from immigrant families or families that aren't necessarily incredibly open to queer issues have this, is that I had to come out over and over and over and over again. It wasn't like, I think in society, we tend to think of coming out as one moment. And it's really not for a lot of people. Like my coming out, I mean, for one thing, the first person I came out to 
which was relatively memorable, was my high school English teacher, who was very much of a mentor to me and who saw something in me nobody else did and really helped me see myself both as a writer and an artist, but also made me feel safe enough to come out to him in a paper. Of course, I did it in writing. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, um, but that was like, I think, a solid decade before I came out to my parents. And so in that decade, there were other coming outs to friends or cousins or, you know, everyone else. And um, probably my most memorable coming out, obviously, was to my parents, because that was the big one, the one I was scared of, and the one that had the most emotional weight, because I felt very much like I would, you know, I talk about this in, in like a love story, one of my novels, the character of Reza, who's who moves to New York with his family. And um, it's the height of the AIDS crisis in New York. And he's internalized a lot of the stigma and the fear. And he feels like he's going to put that all on his family. But that was very much me. And then I ended up coming out to my parents during the Persian New Year. So for people who don't know, Noruz or Persian New Year is our biggest holiday. It's like the holiday that we celebrated as kids. And usually we get together with tons of family and and it just happened to fall. I was in my first relationship. I was in my early to mid 20s in my first relationship. And my boy, we wanted to move in together. And my boyfriend said, I'm not going to move in with you if you don't come out to your parents. I'm not going to like have them call our apartment and pretend to be a roommate. And so I went to the, to Texas where we were celebrating the Persian New Year where, with our aunt and uncle who lived there and all, and like hundreds of other relatives and relatives of relatives. And, and I came out to them there and it, you know, it went not very well, but the, the story I always tell is like, I came out to them in their hotel room. It was a brutal conversation. They didn't respond great. And 20 minutes later, we were dancing with all these friends and family members and having the best night. And then soon enough, I would have to come out to them again. And it's this strange, like, compartmentalization happened where it was almost like they forgot about my coming out. And then I had to do it again. And um, so that that's really kind of what comes up for me when I think about coming out. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's, I think, I think there's a lot of, like, what you're saying is so resonant to, I think, the majority of the people that I interview, if not all of them, of that. It's like, you're not just coming out once. Like, it's, it, it's you're having this conversation over and over with people you know, with people who make an assumption of, oh, I'm going to read you as a woman, so you must have a husband. I read you as a man, you must have a wife. And then you, it's like, it is coming out by saying, actually, my husband or actually my wife or whoever that's it is. A, that's such a good point. I mean, I certainly go through that a lot with having kids. I mean, I have a husband and two children. I think you mentioned that in my bio. But, you know, sometimes if I'm out with the kids alone, especially not as much now, but especially when they were younger, I would get a lot of like, where's mom? It's mom's day off. Like, what a nice dad taking the kids out so mom can have a day off. And I'm like, what's happening here? Like, why? Why is there this kind of like societal assumption? Um And so that's something that, you know, and in a lot of cases, I'll be completely honest, like if it's a stranger on the street, I just keep walking. I'm not, I don't feel the need to constantly come out in, in interactions that aren't meaningful. It's just exhausting. Yeah. I have that, I have that debate with myself, with someone misgenders me Mm -hmm. and like, am I going to expend the energy here to correct you? Or is this not, do I not need to, because I'm never going to see you again? But then I have this like internal dialogue of, am I not like standing up for myself? Am I opening myself up to more 
you know, whatever. It, it, and it's, it's, it's so complicated because you also, I have to tell this story. You also don't know what relationships will end up being meaningful. So I have a, a friend who's really like my best friend, Jenny. I absolutely love her. She's a sister. We moved to LA together. We went to high school together. We were roommates when we moved to LA. We've gone through everything together and we remain, you know, she lives in my neighborhood. We remain, you know, she's my sister. And in, I mean, pre me having kids a long, long time ago, we used to have this tradition of once a week going to this Chinese restaurant to pick up food and come back and watch American Idol. I mean, it was those days. Mm-hmm. And um, this woman who ran the Chinese restaurant, Regina, assumed that we were a couple. And in the beginning, it was like, we didn't realize this Chinese restaurant was going to become a weekly tradition for us. We just kind of didn't say anything. But then we went there for years. And this woman became like part of our lives. And she would talk about us as a couple. And she would like, I mean, one time I... No, who was away? Oh, right. I had gone away. And when I came back, she called us boy and girl, which was mm. so funny. And when I came back, she's like, boy, come here. And I'm like, what? She's like, girl, order Chinese food for two while you were away. Like implying that she was cheating. And I'm like, Vandal. oh my God. <laughs> and this went on for years and we didn't know what to do. We're like, what do we do? How do we tell this woman? How do we tell her that we're not? <laughs> and eventually... Eventually, I think we did tell her, but it was this ridiculous situation that somehow snowballed into this lie. And I mean, we just laughed about it so much. But but it does it is a lesson in like sometimes you don't come out to someone who you think is a stranger and years later they become a regular, you know, supporting actor in your life. And you're like, oh, my God, I feel terrible. Yeah, well, that that actually reminds me it's a very similar story. I go to my same bagel place. At least twice a week. And they for sure know me. They knew me by my first name before I changed it to Dubs. And they would always be like, Dubs, your usual. Or, you know, they'd say my dead name first. Your usual. And I was like, yeah. And then when I changed my name to Dubs, I really did have like an internal debate. I'm like, should I tell my bagel people? Do they, does it matter? Like, will they, will they honor me telling, you know, because it's like, we're not close, but we, we do have that relationship of sometimes twice a week interactions and I know their names and we care, you know, we care in quotes, care about each other and, you know, and whatever. And so, yeah, no, go on, go on, finish. um, So I just was, uh, you know, like really debated. And I was like, you know what, this is, I can't keep hearing my dead name. And so I just said, you know what, I, I go by dubs now. And it took them a week or two. And then they all were just like dubs. And then it was not, it was a non, it it just, it was amazing. And I was like, cause I would have had to go to a new bagel place, but like, it was really special. What I was going to say is I, I'm really excited by this conversation. Cause in every, I talk a lot about coming out. I talk a lot about, you know, being queer as an Iranian in a culture where it was very hard to come out and where they don't necessarily accept it. They think it's a phase. And then each time you have to remind them it's not. But I've never to this day in all my conversations had a had a real discussion about the people in your life who aren't the core people. We always talk about coming out to our families, our close friends. But sometimes the most fraught moments are the people at the bagel shop or the people at your favorite Chinese restaurant you go to every Wednesday night because you don't know how to. Na- it's much harder when it's someone like that who you do see regularly, but who you don't have a personal rapport with. Like you would never ask them a personal question. You know, mm-hmm. you would never like. And so you're like, well, how do I, how do I approach this? It's just a different thing, but those are equally important. I mean, those are part of the fabric of our lives, those little moments, those neighborhood people. And it's just so nice to hear that they were receptive and 
we need more of that in the world. Yeah. Yeah, we really do. And I think that, yeah, to your point, you know, like, I guess in thinking about it in, in the, the context of like a movie, like who's the supporting, who are the main characters, right. who are just the extras, but they all, and I'm sure I'm missing, missing people in movies, but, uh, or shows, but you know, they all do have an impact on us, whether we, you know, think about it or are intentionally thinking about it or not. And so like also thinking about like in doctor's offices of like, I've had to so many times, be, you know, it's, and it's different in a doctor's office because I'm trying to get medical care that I need. And so body parts matter. They usually, they will never matter outside of a doctor's office space. They shouldn't. Um, but I've, I've, I've had to go through like the debate in my mind of like, how do I talk to this person about what I need? And um, like, I guess this is get to get very specific, but, and then we can, we can move on. But I went, cause I, I go to the bathroom a lot. I pee a lot. Like a I lot. I do too. I do too. I have a tiny bladder. Like it's the smallest bladder. I wonder if our bladders Me are the too. same or two oh peas in God. a pot. We're united. <laughs> yeah. But and so I'm like to the point where I went to the doctor. Cause I was like, this is not normal. And the the nurse or whoever was like had me fill out this form and like and had was and it had a diagram of a person with a penis and it was like circle things and tell me about and I was like this doesn't apply to me and she didn't understand and I was like I'm like it was so uncomfortable I was trying to explain I'm trans like I you are thinking I am something but that I'm not like I'm not you know and I don't have a penis and so um getting really into the weeds here, but it just, it was, it was another one of those fraught moments of, I don't know this person. I'm never going to see her again, but I have to disclose this most personal information because they, because the medical community, generally speaking, aren't trained for this kind of conversation. Unfortunately, I think even to this day, there's so much, so many issues with medical care. And I mean, I live in Los Angeles and you live in Brooklyn. So let's just like put that out there for starters. But, you know, I left my doctor who I adored when prep first came out and I asked him about it and he didn't know anything about it and mm. said he would have to do more research. And there had been quite a bit of national news at that point, which is how, and I felt so horrified that he wasn't aware. Um, and so I found a gay doctor and I think that's something really important. I mean, I, I was contacted not long ago, well, maybe long ago, maybe like eight, nine years ago by a mom who was from a more you know conservative, smaller community who whose son came out and was trying to get him on prep and couldn't find a doctor. And so I think when you are queer, that can be really hard, even in big cities. So I can't imagine in other places. And it's funny because I was just recently, I was in London recently, which is a city that just speaks to me. So I spend a lot of time there when I can. And I spent a day in these queer archives that are so inspiring. I can't even, anyone who goes to London, go to the Bishopsgate Institute. I went in the morning. I didn't leave till it closed. But I spend a lot of time, I'm really obsessed with like the 70s and the pre-AIDS queer life. So I was like, give me all that. There was a magazine called Gay News. I'm like, give me all the gay news from the 70s. I just want to see what they were talking about. And there were a lot of debates in there about doctors and people saying we need, we need gay doctors. And, and then there were articles about like, well, it's not safe for them to come out. So how do you suppose that they would, you know, and this is something that's still ongoing in the medical establishment. And I think it's really hard because any member of our community, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, whatever, like 
they need to be honest. They need to feel like they're meant. I mean, that's that should be the the safest of all spaces. They're there to take care of you and of your needs and of your health. So I don't know. We have a long way to go still. We really do. I have, I think being in, being in New York city, I have and gone through so many different doctors for so many different things. I now have my, my team is the majority of them are a Venn diagram of either queer and Jewish and there's like, I think I have one doctor who's not one of those two things. And then some of them are both of those things, um, which to me is like special, so special that to like, cause I, there's a, there's a sense of, I already, you already know, like there's baseline understanding when it comes to certain things where I don't have to keep explaining like what Absolutely. it means to be non-binary, what it means to be, uh, the Jewish is a bonus, but um, <laughs> just, I think it's fun, but like the queer, the queer aspect of like they're sharing their pronouns first. They're asking me my pronouns. They're asking me language that they can use to refer to body parts. That's not triggering. It's like, that's the training that I think all doctors should have. Oh, I agree. But it, unfortunately, as we've, have we, as we've learned, often you have to have a certain experience or have proximity to experience to, to be educated about it, to have empathy for it. And that's just the truth. I mean, I feel so lucky that we now, you know, I go to a, a doctor's office that's primarily gay doctors and they're very educated. And I feel like when I walk in, there's a sense of community and mm-hmm. when something does hit our community, whether it's like years ago, there was a meningitis outbreak in the gay community. And it was like, I was on the phone with my doctor immediately, like get me that vaccine or the monkeypox outbreak or the, you know, there, there just are going to be medical things that are specific to a community, whatever that community is. And unfortunately we can't assume that doctors outside of that, experience are going to know everything yeah and i think i it's like i think a lot of people just assume that doctors know everything and that the doctor but it's right like to to know what questions to ask is is really crucial i just had a phone call with a friend of a friend whose family member is going to have top surgery and Mm -hmm. they were like what should we be thinking about and i every question that I gave them, they're like, we didn't think to ask that. We didn't think to ask that. And it's like, if you don't, it's like one of those, if you know, you know, if you don't know, you don't know, but if you don't even know to ask, how are you supposed to know? Absolutely. And it's really tricky. And and especially now with all of these, the, the anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ legislation, trying to limit healthcare and put restrictions on, you know, LGBTQ healthcare, abortion access, like all of these things that are medically necessary. It's, it's just, Yeah. It's disgusting, but I will say for, for in case anyone is listening, I my absolute favorite nonfiction book of all time that I read and really changed the way I think about human beings is a book by Andrew Solomon called Far From the Tree. And it's about um, what he calls vertical identities or no, horizontal identities. Now I can't remember. Regardless, it's about kids whose identity don't match the parents. And he starts from the kind of premise of like, I was a gay child with heterosexual parents. So they were not able to like understand how to parent a gay child because they're not gay. And it usually kids like match the identity of their parents. And then he goes on to explore different identities from the deaf community to, um, I mean, there were autism. It goes on for many, but, but one of the takeaways I had from the book, especially that the chapter about the deaf community really opened my eyes to a lot. I didn't, I wasn't educated about, but it was the idea that like, if your kid's identity doesn't match yours, it is your job to find them mentors and a community that do, because they are going to need that. You can still be their parent and support them and give them all the love and care in the world. But ultimately, if you have 
a gay child, a trans child, a deaf child, a, an autistic child, whatever it is, find them a community and mentors who can mirror that for them um, and show them how to be in the world. Because I think we all need that. And I just think that's something people should hear. Because I think often parents think I have to be everything for my kid. And I think we need, people have to be around the community. Because you're right, like, you're right. People don't know what questions to ask, but they would if they reached out to other trans folk, right? They would learn what questions to ask from people who had walked that path before them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And um, I mean, and I think in, I think it also begs the question, we were talking about this before we started recording around um, like asking questions and that's like the best way to learn. And then I, I always am wondering and thinking about whose job is it to educate and like, when is it appropriate to ask questions? And like, I am an educator and I do this for a living. And so I get these questions, excuse me, a lot. And, but sometimes I just want to like read my book. And like not be have that educator hat on. Um, and so I don't know. It's just something I think about of like, yeah, when is no, it appropriate? We, when isn't it? And yeah, like, we did before, you know, for anyone who's obviously can't piece it all together. We were talking before because we were asking each other's pronouns. And we were, you know, you had said many people don't. And I was saying, well, I think a lot of people are scared. And mm-hmm. I mean, for me, because I also spend a lot of time in schools. I spend a lot of time both with my children. I have two 11 year olds, like in their circles. And then I also speak at high schools. I'm very used to, you know, announcing your pronouns, asking questions. I do think a lot of people are scared because they don't know the new social rules. So they just stay quiet. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, part of, part of what we can do is make it okay to ask questions. We shouldn't shame people for not knowing something. I think that that people are going to have to learn. I also think very strongly because I I talk to a lot of young people who are always like, it's not my job to educate so-and-so. And I think we have to accept that sometimes it is like, we can't assume that everyone's going to know everything about our community. And when someone's curious enough to ask us, let's take a moment to educate them. It's, you know, I've spent so many hours like within the Iranian community, which is my, you know, cultural community who don't have a lot of knowledge about queer issues and every time I have an opportunity, I show up and I educate them because it means so much to me because I don't want the next generation of Iranians to grow up in the culture I did. I mean, it's a beautiful culture. I'm obsessed with it, which is why I'm so immersed in it and write about it all the time. But also it's a culture that needs to be educated about queer issues. So, you know, I think those are things that we have to sometimes accept, like give people some, show people some grace when they're brave enough to ask about something they don't know about. And and be okay answering, even if it takes you a moment, even if it's not something you're in the mood to do. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, to your point, um, I, even if I'm not in the mood, I usually will still do it. Um, but I think even just being able to refer someone to someone be like, you know, I read this really good book, or there's an article that could really help you with this. Um, I think there's, yeah, there's a difference between like shutting someone down and shaming them versus maybe deflecting the question if it's like not the right time. Um, Because there there are, for me, like just there are, because I am talking about this all the time, plus just navigating the world. um, I just don't have it in me to answer a question or I just, you know, and so I think it's finding that balance um, is important for self-care. I I agree. I, I think a lot of times it is about pointing them to a book or to a movie or to 
an organization, you know, sometimes it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of different ways we can reach out. But I do think if someone's curious enough to ask a question, it's very different. Sometimes people answer the questions for themselves and then they attack you through hate. And that's very different. Then we have to have a different figure out how we respond. Lord knows I've gone through that because, you know, I'm part of the whole book banning frenzy or however you want to define it. It's madness. But um, but when I think when someone's asking a question, what they're saying is I'm curious and I'm open to the answer. And that's that's something we should reward, not shut down. Yeah. And I think, and to your point, um, for me, it's about what's the motive behind the question. If it's like trying to get a rise out of me, if it's trying to push my buttons, if it's trying to be antagonistic, I'm going to have way less patience. than if it's, if it is this genuine, like thirst for, I want to do better. I want to learn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So to, to kind of tie back to your, to your story, you, so you shared with your parents and mm-hmm. they, then you danced, were dancing 20 minutes later. And is it okay to ask like where, where you are now? Like, are you like, how, how are you with them now? Oh, amazing. I mean, <clears throat> when I say that, like my relationship with them, when it comes to my queerness is always going to be different than a lot of like the American friends I have or the Western friends I have. I tend to see most eye to eye on the emotional experience of being queer with other immigrants from around the world. Like um, it's just different because I love my parents and they're so involved in our life. I mean, they love my husband. They love our kids. They're the best grandparents. We see them all the time. We were just there with them in New York. Like it's, um, it's not like, there's any lack of love and and time spent but i also have come to accept that they they don't have the ability to communicate openly and in the same way i do as someone who was mostly raised and you know i moved here when i was 10 like they're never going to have conversations about queer issues the way i do that's just not in their kind of emotional and cultural vocabulary and i think that that's a real lesson that i've had to learn over time of like i have to accept the love they can give know that they've stood by me, you know, they never, you know, what what happened with my family, which I think is so beautiful is like, despite the kind of stops and starts of the acceptance of my life as a queer person, we were always together. You know, I would all, I would always show up. Like I had so many, I talk about this all the time when I go to schools, so many of my Western friends would tell me to like, stop going to visit your family and stop going to family vacations. It's a very, to me, that's a very, very Western thing. I talk about it. I hear her all the time. My friends are like, I don't speak to my aunt because she said this, or I don't go home because my parents voted for this person. And I'm like, well, that's your culture in your life. In our culture, we show up no matter what for family. It's a very like family loyalty comes first. And I think in, in the kind of American slash Western way of thinking, there's a there's this lesson of if someone doesn't accept you exactly as you are, you cut them out. Whereas in our the way we were raised, it's family loyalty comes above all else. Even if you disagree with someone, you show up and love them and support them. And that's been my experience. And I think that actually it 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 equipped me very well for the world because I know how to navigate spaces where people don't necessarily accept me fully and how to create connections. I think that really helps me when I speak to young people, like the most impactful conversations I have with young people are in communities that aren't that open. Like it's, it's much more for me, it's much more meaningful to go speak to kids 
in communities that aren't LA or New York, where they aren't celebrated at their schools, you know, where, and because that, that was my experience. I know what that's like. And, and I didn't shut the door on them and they didn't shut the door on me. And we kind of inched our way toward coming together. Um, but no, I feel very, I feel both proud of myself for, for my emotional journey. And I kind of feel like I, I stood my ground as a human without shutting the door. And I'm very proud of my parents and not just my parents, like my whole Iranian community, we've come a long way. Like they've come a long way, but like, I don't know. I mean, some of your listeners might know there's a new um, women-led protest movement happening in Iran. It's been going on for months. And I've seen so many people be inclusive of the queer community in those protests, both in Iran and outside of Iran. I mean, it was unheard of. I went, the first LA protest I went to when that movement started, there's we have a queer Iranian group here now, which is amazing and unheard of from when I was a kid. And the, the queer group was marching along with like older Iranians marching. It was, it was so inclusive. And I mean, to me, that was mind blowing because when I was a kid, you would never, I mean, you couldn't even mention any queer issue. It would have been so taboo. So I, I think, I don't know it to me, it's a very moving evolution. And that, yeah, it is. And I, I really appreciate you calling out, uh, calling in, bringing attention to um, this idea of um, like different cultures and how we approach families and the ways that we interact with each other. Um, because I think Americans have this way of being like, our way is the only way. Oh, for sure. For everything. And it's like, for it's, sure. it's tr- so truly not. And I've had to like, I mean, and I was raised in, in a world, I was raised to believe that. And so that was, it's, it takes me actively questioning things and being like, is this the best only one right way? And it's usually no, it's not. And so I really appreciate you, you naming yeah, that here. <laughs> that, is my, that is a very, I mean, I could go on and on about this forever, but it's very hard when you've got like one foot outside of America. Like I do, I mean, I was born in Iran and then we went to France, to Canada before we came here. I have family all over the world. My parents have remained very Iranian. They're not like, I don't think of them as, a, I mean, they've lived in America a long time, but they're very Iranian and it can be very hard because the American perspective is is one that is centered only around America. You know, Americans don't tend to learn other languages, which is really unique. You know, you travel the world and almost every other country learns two languages from birth. It's, it's the norm. Um, and I think that allows you a certain amount of empathy into another culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Americans genuinely don't consider perspectives that are grounded outside the world. They don't have a lot like I know with you I'll speak for the Middle East and Iran most Americans don't know anything about the history of American intervention in those countries like it's it's always so wild to me like I think about you know America and the CIA and the Brits like they staged a coup in the 1950s in Iran and they got rid of a democratically elected leader because he wanted to nationalize the oil and we think about America as this like hub of democracy and we go and we invade these countries because we want democracy and it's like all you have to do is do a basic amount of research. No, that's not true. And then it puts the immigrant communities in this very strange position because I'm super grateful to America. I mean, America gave us a home. America let me be this queer writer that I am and have a family and give me a certain amount of safety. But on the other hand, I also have to recognize that I wouldn't be here were it not for a chain of events set up 
by America, which caused a great deal of pain to my family and trauma and death and a lot of stuff. So it's, you know, we are the populations that are kind of like half American and half from another country are dealing with a perspective that's very different. And it would be nice for Americans to show more curiosity about that. Speaking about asking questions and curiosity. Yeah. Amen to that. I mean, I feel like it's just similar to what we were saying earlier about if you know, you know, most people wouldn't even know to do a basic amount of research on what your name, you know what I mean? And so it's just, our history is so curated in one way that it's such it's a disservice to everybody. And I think that's a big thing. And I get so, oh God, I mean, the, the thing that upsets me most right now is conversations around what's going on in schools. I mean, my blood boils, but, um, but it's such a, like, I, I don't want to be too, too extreme. Like, it's just such a, such an uncurious way to look at the world, to think that histories that were erased are not taught are not real. Like we have so much evidence about this history of America's intervention. It's, it's all fact. It's like, or when you think about, you know, for, I'm sure you have your own perspective and opinions, but with what's happening with, with trans kids, it's like, there's so much evidence of the trans community's existence through time. It's not, it's not that it's a new thing. It's that the history was hidden. It's not, you know, Mm -hmm. can't, you know, you can try to make someone invisible, but when the evidence is there, how about, how about embracing it and and educating about what's real? And to me, that's just a way of hopefully healing. I'm a huge history nerd. I love history. And so many, so many of my books are historical fiction. And it just upsets me so much when I see these histories that are willfully hidden in order to push a certain view of the world. Yeah, it's for me, it's infuriating. I mean, with, for, for all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was trying to like, it does. It's one, it's one of the yeah. things that really, because also because I have kids, they're 11, they're in school. The schools are amazing. These kids are amazing. Like this generation, this next generation is so cool. And so, so curious, so interested in like forging a new way to talk about ourselves and our humanity and our history. And I'm like, why are we, why are we trying to impose these old ways of thinking that didn't work and created so much division on this generation that seems so cool. Yeah. Well, people are afraid of losing their power and their position. And yeah, they, they sure are. Keep us in our places. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, you mentioned, um, I, we for sure are going to talk about your new book, but I want to get us there by talking about, um, you mentioned being on a band book fren- yes. in the band book frenzy and also speaking <laughs> to, um, to going into different schools. And so I'm curious, like what it, like if a, like which of your books are banned and why, and how do you, what is that experience like? And then also are the school, like, I'm, I guess I'm just, it makes sense that you speak in schools that like need you like in red States, mm-hmm. but I'm also curious, like who's inviting you into these schools. Cause like, do they want to have a banned book author in their school? Like, are they want, I'm putting this in big oh, air quotes of like, oh God. Well, I mean, you know what I mean? I, I, I hope it goes without saying, and people should know this, that the people who are the true heroes here are the librarians and the educators. Usually for me, it's English teachers, librarians. That's who tends to bring authors in. They are on the front lines. They are the ones dealing with, you know, the angry parents, the angry school boards, the communities, they're the ones who are trying to be inclusive because they know the needs of their students. I mean, I've spoken to librarians who tell me they can't get certain books approved to buy 
you know, usually queer books, often books about race and racism, they can't get them approved. And so they buy them out of their own pockets. And these are not, we don't value educators and librarians with high salaries. So when I hear about that, it makes me, I mean, it's just so moving because I'm like, you're taking money out of your own pocket to buy a book for a student who needs it. So that's, they're really the heroes. I mean, the authors get a lot of the attention, but but they're the ones who tend to invite invite you. I mean, I do have, so it's very common for authors of of middle grade and young adult books to speak at schools. It's a whole kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like side career that we authors have. So in my case, I have an agent who books specifically, not my literary agent, like a speaking engagement agent who books that. I also do a lot of visits through um, Lambda Literary, which is our kind of flagship queer literary organization. And they tend to organize school visits in only in the New York area. Mm -hmm. um, but that's amazing. And that's, and sometimes I'll just get contacted on social media. I'm pretty responsive. Um, if some, if a librarian email, you know, writes me or DMs me, whatever the terminology is, mm -hmm. um, and says, we want you to come. Like I'll, you know, I did one in, God, where was it? Arkansas? Yeah, which that all happened. Like another author put me in touch with a librarian there and they were trying to do a pride thing. And that was such a moving one. I mean, it was on Zoom, but it was incredible because that's not a place I would ever get to to normally interact with people. And so I, I think I end up having more impact speaking in places that are, you know, more in need of queer voices. And I also truthfully learn a lot because I spend a lot of the time when I go to schools, I try not to, I, I, I prefer when it's, sometimes I give a speech in an auditorium. I much prefer when it's a conversation with the students because I get to learn a lot by talking to them and by hearing about their experience. So but yes, in the the primary book that's been banned, I know other books have been on the list, but the it's Like a Love Story. So Like a Love mm -hmm. Story is um, a novel that I wrote uh, very much emotionally inspired by my experience. The novel is about three teenagers in New York City in 1989 and 1990 who get involved in AIDS activism through one of the uncles of, of Judy, who's one of the characters who is living with HIV AIDS and who's an ACT UP member. And so it's very much an ode to ACT UP. There's, you know, there's uh, three huge ACT UP protests that kind of form the structure of the book. Um, it's very much of like a, a, a historical novel that I think gives schools a way to educate kids about the history of HIV AIDS, about activism, about queer history. So I think a lot of schools and librarians and English teachers have embraced it. And it's been taught in schools. And of course, I think that upsets people who don't want that subject matter taught. Um, and, you know, I know firsthand from being in some of these conversations, a lot of these teenagers, and you're talking high school level here. I mean, this is a, this is mostly taught in to like juniors and seniors. I'm not, you know, people love to lie and be like, this book is being taught to like 10 year olds. I'm like, no, it's not. Um, but I've talked to teenagers on the upper end of the the teenage age scale who don't know anything about HIV AIDS who haven't even been taught what it is let alone the fact that you know the fact that the queer community was left behind that Reagan did nothing that act up formed and changed laws you know changed FDA approvals changed the way that um, women and people of color were not included in medical trials you know all this stuff actually like act up's actions had so many repercussions that we now see in what happened with COVID, it's such a huge part of the history of American health. I mean, global health, it's wild to me that it's not taught 
in schools, regardless of my book. But but I do think books give give educators a way to get kids engaged in issues that aren't necessarily taught. And um, yeah, it's it's really upsetting. I mean, the the book banning is it's it's pervasive. So I don't even want to pretend like I'm one of the only ones. There's so many authors being banned. And unfortunately, like in my case, I knew I was being banned, but it wasn't really like hitting close to home. Like I would get a, someone would send me a news alert or a librarian would sometimes DM me saying your book is being pulled off our shelves. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. But more recently it became much more personal. I had people really like attacking me online and spreading really horrible lies and you know, like in their mind, anyone who writes a queer book for anyone at, 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 who's a teenager or at school level is a groomer or a pedophile or, a, you know, and then suddenly you're getting threats. And, you know, I did get a couple threats that were scary. And now I'm kind of, I don't know, it's been long enough that I just let it go. And usually I try and deal with it with a mix of rage and humor to offset it. But it, But it's upsetting. It's really upsetting. It it really is. And I mean, I think students are so lucky to have both their or all, you know, their librarians and their teachers, but then also authors like you who are who are excited and able to come in and speak and kind of push past maybe isn't the right word, but I don't know, push past the 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 fascists who are trying to ban, you know, and to keep students, young people from learning the truth and from learning things that are ultimately history and present day and future things that they should know. Of course, of course. And it's like, look, I mean, one of the passages, so the book banners love to take passages out of context. There's a big thing on Twitter of like, they'll take like one line out of your book that's about sex and they'll be like, look, this is pornography, you know? And the thing about like a love story is it's a book about what it felt like. You know, I, I honestly, I didn't think anyone would read it. It's completely before like a love story. I was constantly told because I was a screenwriter for, for a decade before I started writing books. And I was constantly told like, stop writing gay stories, stop writing Iranian stories. So like when I wrote this super personal book, I'm like, no one's going to read this. I'm writing it for me. And it's turned out to be by far my most successful project. And, you know, it won a Stonewall honor and it's become kind of one of those books that a lot of queer people read, which moves me. But I, you know, people pull out the passages that are about sex out of context and they use them to try and say that the book is pornography. And the thing that upsets me so much is I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And I remember so well my first sex ed class and what they said about being gay and basically it being a death sentence. And, you know, people that was it. And everyone made fun of us. And, and it was obviously I wasn't out then, but, but I remember it like it's in my bones. And so within like love story, there are, there is both one scene where two gay men tell the, the two gay teenagers, they talk to them about sex. And it's a very, it's a conversation I wish I, I had gotten to have when I was young about what sex means for our community and how it can be beautiful and how you protect yourself. And and then the two gay teenagers do have a sex scene. And, you know, I think, again, that's important too. And it's a complicated one. It's not like, an, it's very similar to how I discovered sex, although I was older. But, you know, it's, I think it's so important to give kids ways to see what sex is for our community because it's different. And it's not like, I don't want kids to only have heterosexual models which there are plenty of it's like why don't they pick out those books with heterosexual totally 
I mean, it's funny, like many of the books they're banning are actually books I read in high school. One of the books that is getting banned quite a bit is My Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, mm. um, supposedly because of a sex scene, although really I'm sure racism has more to do with it. But um, but I that was required reading the summer before my freshman year of high school. So I read that when I was 13, um, not on the older spectrum of, of uh, high school, but it was a book that blew my mind. It was a book that opened things up for me. It was so powerful. Like I don't, it's just, I always feel like when it comes to this banning, we have to ask ourselves, what are they banning and what are they not and why? Like, because it's so clear. Um, one, actually this amazingly brave author who has been very involved. I don't know this person personally, but DM'd me on Twitter and got their hands on a document from one of the per people who's very involved in the book banning and said, I have the documents they're using for your book to like ban like a love story. And on the, on the front page, it said, um, the reason this book is being banned is, is alter alternative sexualities. Mm. And I'm like, well, now we know, now we know they can say when they're doing it publicly that they're banning it for other reasons, but really it's, they're scared of alternative sexualities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is uh, it you? It, you, I think you said this earlier that it boils your blood and it boils my blood too. Just thinking about it, I watched the the Judy Bloom documentary, and uh, I didn't. Have you seen it yet? No, but we took our kids to um. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Is and it, it good? Was, it's amazing, and it opened up so many beautiful conversations with them. And I wish every parent would take it. And I'm just gonna put out there because we have a a boy and a girl that I think parents of boys should especially take boys um, because so much of it is about the experience of young girls and it's so authentic. And I think it's a movie that could really create conversations that make the world a better place. I loved it. Oh, I can't wait to see it. Um, but I, I never knew that Judy Bloom's books were banned. Oh and yeah. That, and you know that they were, that she was on, on the front lines fighting, you know, to reverse book bans in the seventies. And I just was like, huh, history repeats itself, which then ties back to what you were saying earlier about how important it is to understand our history and to learn about it. And, um, Oh yeah. Well, I mean, book bands have been around for a long time. And the funny thing is, I feel like book bands have always been like step one of the beginning of fascism. It, it's always like you begin by banning art, right? Mm -hmm. Don't we remember how it yeah. Yeah, Judy Bloom's been amazing. I don't know if you followed the whole thing that happened where that reporter tried to like corner her into becoming queerphobic by asking her about J.K. Rowling, but I saw a, a, the ice the tip of it, but I didn't. Yeah, it was really upsetting because I feel like they tried to set her up, and then they created a headline that made it seem like she was, you know, what for whatever, like on board with everything J.K. was saying, and then Judy Bloom really quickly released a statement about her solidarity with the queer community. And I thought it was really amazing because she is, you know, she is from a different generation. And I feel like for someone from her generation to, to navigate what's happening right now can be tricky. And I, I was really proud of her for, for so quickly realizing what was being done and what people were saying about her and saying, no, I, I stand in solidarity with this community. And she's, she's been, She's been pretty cool, Judy Bloom. Cool. I love on that. On every issue. Yeah. 
Uh, I'll have to look into it a little bit more. But um, so I read I read the Chandler Legacies and I'm in the middle of like a love story, which I uh, loved Chandler Legacies. Uh, it was really powerful. And I'm really loving like a love story. Uh, but you have a new book that just came out yesterday. Yes. Only this beautiful moment. What it tell me? I haven't had a chance to read it yet. So tell us, you know, what is this book and what inspired it? And, uh, you so know, all the good stuff. It's my favorite of my books for what it's worth. Um, and it's the, the, the initial responses have been very positive. It's a multi-generational family story. So it's about three men in the same Iranian family, two of whom are queer. Um, it takes place in the 1930s, the 1970s and present day, kind of just pre-COVID. And um, it's in each story, the character is either going from Tehran to Los Angeles or Los Angeles to Tehran. And so it's very much a story about that um that kind of like dual identity of being from both places and about the history of American intervention in Iran and queer history and how a lot of those political moves influenced how and where this family went and the secrets that they kept. But within it, you know, it's it's very much like someone, I, I think it was John Cameron Mitchell. I can't remember who said this, but said like, if you put everything you love into into your work, then people will love it too. And so it's very much like about all my obsessions. The 1930s section is about a teenager who gets a contract with MGM to become a movie star. And I grew up really obsessed with old Hollywood, like a lot of other queer kids. So it's it's all about like that star making machinery and and the glamour of it and the dream of it. But then the price you have to pay for it and the anti-queer legislation of the time, like I did a lot of research into, I don't know if you know about the pansy craze of the time, but in Hollywood of the 1930s, it was very popular to go see drag performers on stage. It was, there were both drag queens and drag kings who like all the stars would go see, but because they were being popular, there was a wave of legislation against them as well. So there was, um, you know, if you, you could be in drag on stage, but if you were expressing your gender in the streets, you would get arrested. And there was a whole wave of, you know, arresting gay men in bars and all the stuff we see all the time is the minute we gain power, they, they turn against us legally. And so that there's a lot of exploration of that. And then the 1970s section really um, explores the Iranian revolution. And the, the again, all the stuff we talked about earlier about how hard it is to, you know, come to America, knowing that America is partially responsible for why you have to flee your country in the first place. And then the present day section is a lot about, um, it's about a young kid who lives and he he was born and raised in America who goes back to Iran and discovers that Iran has actually does have a queer community, but one that looks really different from the one we understand that doesn't have like, it's not a public political community. It is. And I have family that lives there and, and friends who live there. And, and I know I did a lot of research into what life really is like, and it's not, it's not that a queer community doesn't exist. It's just that they can't, be public the way we are. And so we, we don't think about them as existing. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's really about like things I am genuinely obsessed with and I love it. And it's also about family and connection and these three generations of men who, who, because of their lives, like have certain fissures in their relationship and how they come together finally. And and I love that too, because as we discussed, like my journey with my own family, me, my family means everything to me. I'm so loyal and I love them. And 
And I think it was really nice to write a, a story where the family doesn't necessarily begin in a place of oneness, but somehow gets closer to each other. It sounds incredible. I can't wait to read it. Um, I hope you can read it. Yeah. I mean, so is it so, and sorry if you just said this, but I just want to make sure. So, uh, because you you talked so much about earlier about um, and you just brought it up again here too about like family loyalty and like the different um, what is the word I'm looking for um, just like structures of how it is to be queer and yeah. you know Iran is different than in America and so Iran sorry and so um, but so does the book show the like the difference of like what it is like. In, in Iranian culture, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the things that begins the book the the present day queer Iranian character has a boyfriend who's much more militant, who gets very upset when he announces he's going back to Iran to see his grandfather. Um, and the American character is very much a stand-in for all those people I talked about who always told me like, "Don't speak to your family because they don't accept you." Like, mm-hmm. cut these people out. And, you know, coming from a place he thinks is good and he thinks is pro-queer, he says, like, what are you doing going to a country where they kill gay people? Like, you're now, it's like, in his eyes, anyone who even goes to that country is complicit. And so there's very much an exploration of the different mentalities, the kind of Western mentality of how we, you know, for lack of a better word, I call it like boycott mentality. Mm. Um, I think there's a very Western thing of like, oh, well, this place is not pro-gay, so you can't go there. But it's also like, but what if that's where your family's from? Like, so you're now going to never see your family again and not have that beautiful relationship, that that oneness that you need with your community. Like, these are very complicated issues. And sometimes I feel like, in my experience, the people who are always saying, oh, we, we have to boycott this and boycott that, are the people who don't need those places anyway. Like, they don't, they're kind of in their own western liberal bubbles and for them it's easy because why are they going to go to the middle east you know like they don't have a relationship but for those of us who are from there it's really different and we have to learn a different kind of empathy and so i don't know i mean look i haven't gone back to iran it's a complicated thing i wish i could go but plenty of my family does i know a lot about what life is like there and i think it's worth it's worth considering because I often feel like in America, we think of queer issues as American issues. Like it's worth considering what are queer issues globally? And when do we, when do we start focusing on ourselves as a global community, which we are, we really are. And that's been actually one of my favorite things about being queer is when you travel, you have an instant community. It's amazing. Like almost everywhere I've gone in the world, you go into a queer space and you're like, I'm home. And it's like, that's that's something a lot of people don't have. And so I just think it's worth really taking like a global view of our community always and having empathy for people who don't, who don't have the luxury of, you know, living 24 seven in a liberal bubble. Yeah, it's, um, I'm thinking about just, um, I admittedly don't have as much experience thinking about outside of the United States when it comes to these kinds of queer conversations. Um, but when I think about like Florida and Tennessee and all of these states that are Texas, 
that are, you know, their ledges, their government, their, mm-hmm. you know, their state governments are actively trying to shut queer queerness down. Um, and like people, put, you know, how Florida put out a, some group in Florida put out, like, it's not safe to travel here if you're queer. Um, like a message. And I'm just was thinking like, but what about the queer people who are in Florida? Like how did, what, what kind of message does that send to them? And I went to um, Memphis to see a friend in a show and was like a little anxious to be in Tennessee. Um, and the, one of the friends I was with was like, let's see if there's like a local LGBT center and let's go there. And at first I was like, no, I, I like, completely just said no for no reason and then i was like actually that's a good idea and like to your point we went to this center it was like in this little home uh a home turned into an lgbtq center and it was instantly oh like of course there are i mean of course i knew there are queer people in these states because that's why they're trying to ban and legislate them but what i'm saying is like i think we forget we just get so sucked up into our own bubbles and in our own worlds. Yes. And one thing I've heard so often from queer people that makes me crazy is like, well, people should just leave. And I'm like, it's not that easy. Like yeah. leaving the place you live, first of all, is economically unfeasible for a lot of people. But beyond that, it might be where your whole family and community is and your job is like, that's not like this idea that people can just get up and leave. I don't yeah. know. I'm very, you know, anyone who reads like a love story will know that. Madonna is my all-time hero. Um, and I credit, look, I credit her when I was young and I grew up very sheltered. Like Madonna was it. Like as far as an artist who actually could reach within my home, who was pro-queer, she was the only one. So she was she was my safe space <laughs> when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I loyal to her for that reason. But I remember when she went to Russia at a time when everybody was telling people to boycott Russia and to not go in concert there. And there was a lot of controversy over her not canceling a show. But the thing is, she turned the show into a fucking queer rights event. Like she gave this amazing speech about why she was there and what she stood for. And I think I'm pretty sure her people, I'm not sure, like handed out pride flags to the audience and they were holding it up. And I said, and I thought like, this is a much more, this is a much more impactful way to show up for the queer people within Russia. It's not like they don't exist. They're there. They're suffering like mm-hmm. by showing up. Now it's different. If she had showed up and said nothing, I probably would have been disappointed. But if you're going to do it, like do it right. If you're going to go to one of those States where people are suffering, show up for them. They need us. Like we're the ones in a place of privilege living in communities where we can still walk around safely. Like what about, I mean, with all this stuff happening in Florida, like, my God, Florida has so many queer people. It's Florida. It's where tons of huge cities are. I mean, what about those queer people? What about the queer educators, like the queer teachers who have to somehow balance? I mean, they passed now the whole, you know, the so-called don't say gay law, whatever the official name of it is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's. I think they raised it up through high school. Like, how do queer teachers navigate that without talking? How do queer parents? I always think about this because I hate like, this whole parents' right thing that started. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a parent. Like, but how do I always think like, what, what would our kids, our kids are 11. Like, what would they do if they're not allowed? Are we not, they're not allowed to say they have two dads. Can they not, can we not visit for parents day? Can we not go to school events? Like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Just typically for the queer communities that are actually there. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. And it's, 
just a lot. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. It really is. I don't know. But I do know that in my heart, what I believe is that like what you just said, there are queer people everywhere, whether it's conservative American states, whether it's countries like Iran, where it's criminalized, you know, it's there. We're all over the world and we have to show up for each other and think globally and not get into, you know, siloed bubbles. Yeah. And, and I'll say it just because I feel like I have to say it, but it, we, it could be a whole other conversation of like, not only do we need to show up for each other globally, but show up for each other within the community. I feel like there's so much gatekeeping and so much, there's still so much transphobia within the queer community and biphobia oh, yeah. within the queer community. And so there's, there's just, there's a lot of work to be done to really, you know, show I, up for each other in these authentic ways. Yes. No, I talked about this on a panel I was on recently. A, it, was it a banned books panel or a queer? I don't know. I was on a few panels, but, um, but it was about how much I believe like we have to have intergenerational conversation in the queer community, which isn't something necessarily um, that happens organically because I have heard a lot of older queer people, obviously it's mostly gay and lesbian people, but, you know, say things that are transphobic or kind of repeat talking points that I feel like you hear from transphobic people as if it's fact. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's actually not like, hold up. Like, and I think part of it is because your average, like, let's say, you know, I'm 46. So I'm going to be, I'm on the verge of turning 50, which is utterly nuts to me because I often feel like, (laughs) but, um, but I'm also somebody who has, you know, most queer people don't have children. So I have two 11 year olds who go to a school where like, you know, I think a lot of the reason people are so afraid is like the majority of kids are now queer, (laughs) but like, Um, But also I go to speak at high schools, like I'm constantly interacting with young people. So they educate me too. And so for me, it's like, well, of course, I'm going to embrace and accept and be educated. But your average 50 year old gay man or lesbian isn't having those intergenerational conversations. And so they hear the kind of fear based stuff on the news or on Bill Maher or on wherever they listen, you know, whatever they get it from. I don't even know anymore, because a lot of liberal people are very transphobic i mean i sometimes hear stuff and i'm like you like why what um so i just think we need to engage more intergenerationally i feel like if 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 older queer people could see how awesome it was like how cool it was that young people get to express themselves sooner and more openly i mean i don't know but i i i completely agree with you i it it's heartbreaking sometimes when i hear our own community turn against each other it's really I don't know. I I don't. I. Yeah. It's. It does. Yeah. And but something that that um. You know, gives me hope. Gives me a sense of, you know. I don't. Know, I guess hope is the only only way to put it. Is when other people in the queer community do intervene, and when our allies intervene, and when people who who maybe like uh, I already forgot the book that you mentioned, but about the the um vertical or horizontal oh, far from the tree yeah, yeah far from the tree thank you of like people like parents who don't hold the identities of their kids will st- will will actively educate themselves and will be you know like really strong allies for their kids that gives me hope that makes me feel like okay there are people out there like you i mean who are you know you you are actively educating yourself and are open to being educated yeah. i mean that that well, stuff is kids, great yeah i mean look our kids know 
And we told them from a very young age, like whatever and however you want to self-express is going to be fine by us. And it's, you will always be loved. And they, I mean, they had trans and non-binary friends from at their last, I mean, they're 11 now, they started a new school. They already had trans and non-binary friends who were completely accepted by their community, their new school, you know, also as tons of, you know, everything from trans and non-binary to bi to, and, and it's very accepted. But I also recognize that we live in a bubble. And I just have to say that because we, you yeah. know, I, mean, I live on the, I don't live in West Hollywood proper, but I live really close to West Hollywood. There's tons that we you know we live in a community where queer people are abundant and acceptance is abundant. And I'm so happy that I'm here, of course, but I recognize like I have a friend who lives in London, which to me, again, I mentioned London is like, for me, just like the most culturally inspiring place. I absolutely love it. I'm a theater junkie who goes there to just be inspired by the intensely brilliant actors. But I also recognize there's stuff happening there that's scary. Like I have a friend who's a parent who said one of the moms at her school has a trans kid and is considering leaving the country entirely because mm. this whole kind of J.K. Rowling-ish movement has really taken over in England, much more so than here, apparently. And it's really scary for them. So I recognize that even in places that we think of as like open-minded, families are going through horrible things because they're trying to support their children. And then those children are internalizing that shame. And that's the, for me, that's the worst. Like I grew up anyone who reads my books knows I felt very ashamed as a kid. I hate shame. I don't love shame as a tactic, even against people I don't agree with. I try not to shame. I think shame is, is a corrosive thing that leads to harm often against ourselves, honestly, Um, which breaks my heart because we need to talk about like that issue in our community. I have so many friends who are dead from suicide and overdose who are all queer. It's heartbreaking many of them are people who on the outside seemed incredibly successful incredibly together and they were dealing with so much pain and shame and residual stuff from childhood but you know you think about a trans kid in a community that doesn't accept them and what kind of shame are they internalizing that's that's horrible like we just have to I don't know we got to do better by young people yeah we really do are you are you a Brene Brown fan don't I mean I I don't I've never seen Brene Brown. Is that crazy? Well, it's have you read any of her books? No. Well, listen, no, I'm not going to shame you for Brown it. Is. I know who Brene. <laughs> oh, you're going to shame me? No, 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 no. I'm I'm not going to shame you, but I I invite you to read her books because she talks so much about vulnerability and shame, and um, her books changed my life in the best oh, really? way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I will. I will. Um. No, I really do. I think shame is one of those things we don't talk about enough because we are, a. Li- I think we're quite a shame obsessed culture. I see shaming all the time, both in real life and in online life. Um, and, and I just don't get it. I'm always like, can we find another way to communicate that's not about shaming others? Because that doesn't have a positive end in any way. Yeah. For anybody involved in the, in the interaction. No. Exactly. And especially with young people. I mean, I think grownups have a different, different skill sets, but I think shame at having experienced it all through my childhood, I think shame in young people, it has a way of lingering, you know, and then the effects of it can be really bad as you know, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah, I would say I would say grownups have a different skill set 
if they work for it and they do the work yeah. to evolve right. their emotional. Right. Well, and, and I, like, yes. And I did. I mean, interpersonal. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure most people can assume this from, you know, hearing where I started and where I am, but it's like, I went to tons of therapy. I've done mm-hmm. tons of, you know, all my writing, I go to Al-Anon, I've done the artist. Like, I mean, you name it as far as, I mean, I don't know Brene Brown, but I've done my share of, of self care and, and digging deep. Um, but yeah, li- like I said, and I think people don't talk about this enough. I, I say this in the author's note to like a love story, like a love story is, is about, you know, the, the worst years of, of AIDS in the United States. Cause again, we have to think globally AIDS mm-hmm. and HIV are still, still, um, issues that we need to talk about. But I think like many people in the United States are like, oh, well, that's over, you know, that's the past. And you can say, I mean, now we live in an age where if you have, if you're lucky enough to have medical care, yes, like HIV and AIDS in the United States can be treatable, or you could be on PrEP if you, you know, have the ability to to have a queer friendly doctor and health insurance and all that. But But we don't talk enough about the lingering effects of it. Like, friends who are my age who who end up committing suicide or overdosing or the epidemic of addiction in our community. And I think a lot of it is tied to growing up at a time where you were completely demonized and where you thought you were going to die anyway. I mean, I think a lot of members of my generation, we didn't see ourselves living to this age. And so, and there were no models. Um, I mean, there was recently this viral tweet that went around and from this clearly uneducated human being who said like, oh, if it was about the increase in in queer identification among young people. And like, if now that we're seeing this, like how come Gen X didn't have all these like gay people? And then it was like, well, because the community was dying and because it was much harder to come out because of the shame and the stigma. So, you know, I think a lot of my generation is also dealing with that. I talked to a lot of older queer people who still have residual self-hate anger sadness all of it it's hard yeah it's really hard i could i could continue talking about with this you know talking about this with you for hours but i want to be respectful of your time and so i'm gonna uh move us into the lightning round of questions oh yay okay um which are all mostly open-ended because i was told they were too binary before um so just answer as quickly as you can um, what is the name of your superhero alter ego? Abdana. Oh, I love that. Where's your favorite place to think? Ooh, uh, the bathtub. Who is an influential queer person in your life? Oh, God. Um, James Baldwin. Hmm. Um, what's a song you can listen to on repeat forever? Ooh, um, oh my God. Uh, white dress by Lana Del Rey. Mm. Uh, we referenced this earlier, but so a lot of states have proposed don't say gay bills. How do you like say gay show gay? How are you gay to counter those bills? <laughs> I'm still figuring out how to ask this question. <laughs> um, my God, I feel like I'm very bad at hiding my gayness. I, I I feel like all I do is talk about being gay and gay icons. I I don't know writing gay books. I feel like I'm just as gay, gay, gay as you get. So love it. 
Um, where do you find joy? Oh, I mean, mostly my my kids, youth. I mean, being around children and their joy and their like incredible like everything is joyful to them because it's new and I think it's so I I'm very like my body's creaky and getting old and I mentioned in the beginning I'm dealing with diverticulitis right now so I'm actually in some degree of pain but like you know when you're around young people like you remain young at heart and it's such an amazing thing I love that um okay last one bagels or donuts oh bagels for sure yeah there aren't right or wrong answers but that's the right answer a hundred percent abdi thank you so much for being here and for sharing and uh for just being for being you and for being so amazing thank you for coming out oh well thank you for having me and thank you for creating this space for conversations i think it's really important and beautiful and i hope a lot of people are listening thank you me too (laughs) thank you for coming out